0: I'm not quite sure how long I've known Mike, it was over 20 years. But, uh, I uh, met my lovely wife Lynn's in St Andrew's Chorleywood and went to the youth club there. And uh, after we left, Mike became the youth leader there. And out of that came the youth ministry at New Wine, that then led into Soul Survivor, that is now an international, amazing thing that's happening for young people around the world. and. I'm really thrilled that you're here tonight, Mike, so come up and we'll pray for you, buddy. Let's give him a welcome, shall we? Father, I want to pray that you would bless this man this evening as he speaks to us amongst friends and that, Lord, we would meet with you, each one of us, as you speak through him in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank
1: you, Mark. Well, it's uh, an absolute uh, joy and privilege to be here Uh, and it's just great to see what God is doing uh, in this church. I've heard loads from various people uh, over the last few years and uh, just as Mark says, uh, uh, we're part of the same family And uh, we're not just part of the same family, because if you're a Christian, you're part of the same family, but we're kind of part of the same tribe, really, uh, of the family. um, And so it's wonderful for me to be here. Um, I really just want to begin uh, by sharing uh, about just some of the things that God did uh, at our festivals this last summer. And there is a reason for it. Uh, Well, there's two reasons. One is I just love telling the stories, Uh, but there is another reason. Uh, and uh, this last summer we saw um, the best thing that happened was we saw over 1,800 young people give their lives to Jesus for the first time and uh, that is always amazing and that's a a statistic but behind the statistic are real people and uh, it's just so wonderful when you get to meet some of the real people and you hear their stories and they tell you of what God did and uh, uh, there was um, Uh, One evening, in fact it was the last night of Soul Survivor B, I think it was, and uh, I was sitting on the side of the stage and just saying goodbye to everyone and chatting and listening to the stories and that, and this lad came up to me, and uh, he kind of hovered a little bit, and then when it was his turn, he leant in, and it was a kind of conspiratorial air he had, and he said, Uh, I came this week my friends persuaded me I didn't want to come I've been an atheist I've not been a Christian at all but my friends kept going on and on and on and they said they said why don't you come and in the end I came against my will and he said the first night uh, in the worship I thought I'm not very keen on this and then at the end of the worship he said you got up and you started speaking and do you know I kind of knew what he was going to say next I just knew (laughs) And I, knew, and, and, and I knew he was going to say, you know, and you spoke and, it was, and, and all that. And, and so I kind of, I kind of prepared uh, my humble face. It was not I, it was the Lord. He just merely used his servant. And, um, and I was sure he was going to say, and when you started speaking, God really spoke to me and I gave my life to Jesus and I came forward. Do you know what he said? He said, and when you got up to speak... I thought, what the hell am I doing here? He said, let's be honest, you do look and sound eccentric. And I thought, what have I come to? Talk about someone bursting your balloon. And then he said, but I stayed. And during the course of the week, something started to happen. And I wanted you to know that earlier on this evening, I came forward and I gave my life to Jesus. And I know he's alive, and I know he exists, and I just want to serve him. And uh, we had so many little stories like that, of God at work, God doing stuff. Uh, We saw, uh, as I heard, amazing stories about some of the things, the healings that were taking place at New Wine. Uh, We just had some wonderful, wonderful stories at Soul Survivor A, which is up in Stafford. uh, Last year... Um, not this summer, the summer before, uh, a girl came, 16 years old, and uh, uh, the reason we we remember her is because our welfare team got very, very involved with her. Because when she arrived, uh, she was five stone with a BMI of 11 and severely anorexic, to the degree that our welfare team uh, met with her and her youth leaders and they considered sending her home because they, they felt that there might be a health risk, there was a risk that something could happen to her on the site. They ummed and ahred, and they agreed with the youth, her youth workers that they would monitor her and meet her and them every day just to check that everything was all right. Somewhere in that week, she met Jesus in a completely new way. And she came back to solve Survivor A this summer. And she wasn't five-stone, She was 10 stone, with a BMI not of 11, but 22. And on the last night, she was showing me photos on her phone of her a year ago. And she said, look at what Jesus did. Look how he healed me. I'm a different person. We had a a youth worker brought his youth group to Soul Survivor A, except actually, strictly speaking, they brought him. Because a few weeks earlier, he'd broken his pelvis and he was in a wheelchair. And all week they were wheeling him around. And on the last morning during communion, we encouraged people just to pray for each other for healing. And his youth group gathered around him and they prayed. And then we heard screams. And then we saw shouts of joy and tears as he started walking and then running around the place. He couldn't hardly move and he was completely healed. It was wonderful. God did that. And I've had so many letters so many letters from folks, so many uh, Facebook messages uh, of what the Lord did. And I just want to read you one. And this isn't uh, the most dramatic, but it is my favorite. And I will treasure this, because it comes from a mum. And uh, I just need to make sure I can read the words, because, as Mark mentioned, I'm getting old. She wrote this, a few, week, a few days, literally a few days, after, I can't remember if it was Soul Survivor B or C. She said this, Dear Mike, last year I took my son Edward to Soul Survivor C. He has autism and Tourette's syndrome. He couldn't go with a youth group because although he was 13, he was unable to cope without a carer. So my husband and I brought him each day And took him home at night. He was in a very bad place and very depressed. One night you asked for anyone who had suicidal thoughts to come for prayer. Edward wouldn't go to the front. But indicated that he would like prayer. We prayed with him at the back. And a stranger joined us and asked if he could pray too. He told Ed that he had a picture that Edward would would become a great voice for God and would use his music as a tool. Edward went back home feeling better. And when he started back at his special school in the September, he came home and said, quote, the worship at school is rubbish. The teachers just do it because they have to, but they don't believe in God. He told me he had offered to take over running collective worship for the whole school, and he did it too. Wow. Over the next few months, his confidence grew and grew. This is a boy who was previously unable to leave the house before. As he improved, he started going part-time to a mainstream school. He fitted in well, and again his confidence grew. Towards the end of the school year, Ed had improved so much that he was offered a full-time place in mainstream school, giving him the option of GCSEs, which he didn't have at special school. Edward chose to be baptised last month and gave a speech which brought the whole congregation to tears. And guess what? This year he is with you again, on his own, with a youth group. Hooray! And there's more. He said that during one session, he came to the front for prayer again, And he heard God speak to him for the first time. He was so excited, he said he felt relaxed for the first time in his life. And when I saw him on Thursday, I could see a difference in him. He wasn't even twitching with his Tourette's. I saw you today outside Costa Coffee with my husband, and we smiled and said hello. Hello. And I had a sudden urge to tell you all about what Jesus did for my boy. I'm sorry this is really long, and you probably will never read it. But I just wanted <laughs> But I just wanted to say thank you from a mum. I'll treasure that. Jesus does that. That's what Jesus does. We had. A most amazing summer. God did the most amazing things. But all the time, I was struggling. We decided this year um, that we would do most, more of the teaching ourselves and get fewer big name speakers in from outside. Because this year, as home team, my colleague Andy Croft and I, uh, who I think was with you just a few weeks ago, we decided that we would do a bit more of the teaching because we really wanted to express and share the values uh, behind what we were doing. We wanted, we always try and model them, but we wanted to say them as clearly as we could. And uh, on the second night of Soul Survivor A, it was my turn uh, to teach. And... um, uh, To be honest, it didn't go very well. Uh, I kind of lost my concentration. Uh, I couldn't remember what I was supposed to say next. Uh, It it, it was one of those nights. It didn't feel great. And I finished that night really, really low. I mean, God is gracious. And he, he still did some stuff and he met with people. But I just knew. And then I drove back to where I was staying. And that night, I couldn't sleep. And uh, I was just pacing up and down, and by morning, I had convinced myself, I had made a decision that this would be my last sole survivor, and that I would, in September, tell the trustees that I was stepping down, and that we needed to find someone else to take the lead. And I, was, I, I gave all my reasons in my head. I don't connect with young people anymore. I'm nearly, I'm 54, very nearly 55, you know, I, I, much too old to connect with with teenagers. And uh, that I was past my time, I needed to move on. And I drove in for our 8am leaders meeting, uh, just feeling really low. When I got there, we, we all shared and then at the end I said, listen guys, I think we may have made a mistake um, saying that we would do all the teaching, not, not all, a lot of the teaching. Um, I think we might need to You know I was planning to phone my friend J. John and say get in the car and rescue us and various other people and then I said to them I want you to pray and ask the Lord to speak because I need to hear from God about what we should do. We prayed there and then straight after three of them completely independently came up to me and they said exactly the same thing. They said Mike I think the Lord is saying hold your nerve stay the course he's in this. When I heard that from three different people, I was a little bit more encouraged. That morning, we had our main morning meeting together. During the worship, the Holy Spirit began to move, and he moved in the most wonderful way, and in such a way that we couldn't have the talk. I mean, God was doing so much by the end, there just wasn't time for the talk, and then we had to do the talk we were going to do in the morning, in the evening, and guess what? If we'd had the big name, Great Speakers from Outside, that would have been really hard to do, really hard to do. And do you know, through the summer, I struggled because I'm, I'm not as young as I was, and I'm not as small as I was, and uh, a whole load of other things. And uh, I struggled with doubts. I struggled with insecurities. I struggled with feeling low. I struggled sometimes in the midst of a huge crowd with feeling lonely. And most of the time, I struggled with what can I offer. Anyone understand what I'm saying? I just want to read a scripture and then talk on this scripture. And it is... From 2 Kings chapter 4. It's at the time of Elisha and there is a widow who comes to Elisha in desperate need and I just want to read from verse 1. The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, your servant my husband is dead and you know that he revered the Lord but now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves Now, this was a serious situation. It doesn't get much worse than this. Her husband had died. She had no money. She was in such debt that the people she owed money to were coming to take her sons as slaves. I'm telling you, Elisha, I need you to help him. Do you know how Elisha replied? Elisha replied to her, how can I help you? if I was this widow I would have looked at him I would have said are you deaf? are you stupid? did you not heal? okay let me say it again my husband's dead I owe so much money and I have nothing that they're going to come and take my two boys into slavery how can you help me? let me think maybe you could buy me a box of chocolates no I don't think that's what I'm getting at can you believe his question, how can I help you? And then he says something even more outlandish. Tell me, what do you have in your house? Again, I would imagine this woman was like, hello? Are we speaking the same language? I have nothing in my house. I have no money, nothing I can sell. They're coming to take my boys into slavery. What she actually says is this, your servant has nothing there at all, she said, nothing there at all, except a little oil. Elisha said, go round and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into all the jars, and as each is filled, put it to one side. She left him, and afterwards shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her, and she kept pouring. When all the jars were full, she said to her son, bring me another one. But he replied, there is not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. I suppose my question for you tonight is really simple and for me what do you have in your house what do you have oh nothing I'm not very gifted I'm not very talented I'm not very, very good at praying I haven't got anything just a little bit of oil that will do says the Lord as long as you trust me with the little that you have, I will multiply it. How do you trust me? You put the jars out. You get the jars from everywhere. How much, how much will you trust me? How many jars will you put out? How many jars will we put out in our generation, in this part of the world, in this place, and trust that the Lord will take the little we have and fill the jars to bless a multitude just a few years earlier uh, Moses uh, was in a similar situation Uh, he was a refugee uh, in the in the desert of Midian and then one day he was walking along and he came across a bush that was a little bit different to all the other bushes and God spoke to Moses at the burning bush and he said Moses you (laughs) refugee I'm calling you to go back to Egypt and to go and to take, lead my people out of their captivity, out of their bondage, out of their slavery towards the promised land. And there follows a hysterical and hilarious conversation that I adore between Moses and the Lord. And the reason I adore it is because I could have said all the same things. Well, that's, that's not going to work. I'm not eloquent enough. You have to send someone who could speak properly. I mean... Who am I that I should go? I love that question Moses asked. You know, he says, he says, Lord, who am I that I should go? Now, I understand that question because before I go somewhere, before I came here tonight, I said to some of my friends, I said, hey, who am I that I should go to St. Paul's Ealing, Mark and Lindsay's church, and preach there? I am but a nothing. I am but a worm. Who am I that I should go? And I said that because I was hoping that my friends would say something like, oh, come on, Mike, you're not that bad. I wonder what Moses was thinking when he said to the Lord, who am I that I should go? I wonder if he was hoping that the Lord would say, oh, come on, Moses, I've heard you speak. I've heard worse. Do you know how the Lord answered his question? The Lord said, I will go with you. Now, if I was Moses at that point, I would have said, thank you very much, Lord, for that sentiment. That's very nice. That's a lovely little thought. Um, that's not actually the answer to my question. Let me see if I can rephrase the question for you. The question goes along the lines of, who am I that I should go do you see what the Lord does? He doesn't answer Moses' question. Because Moses is asking the wrong question. Instead of asking, who am I? He should have been asking, who are you? Because in God's democracy, one person plus God is always a majority. And God says, you don't need to know who you are. That's not the, you need to know who I am. And all you need to know is my presence will go with you. I will go with you. And if you noticed, um, um, Moses learned that lesson later on in, in Exodus chapters 32 and 33. I think it's chapter 33. Uh, when the Lord says, you know what? I've had it with Israel. Uh, you better lead them into the promised land, but I'm going to stay here in the desert because if I go with you, I may destroy, the, I may destroy them. And do you know what Moses says? He says, unless your presence goes with us, we will not get up from here. For what will distinguish us From all the other peoples on the face of the earth. Except that your presence goes with us. I spend almost half my year traveling in different countries. um, Inviting myself all over the place. Usually in the winter I go to the southern hemisphere. I just felt the Lord leading me there. (laughs) And I've done a study of these things. And for years now, I have studied the comparison between Christians and non-Christians in many countries, on many continents, and I have come to a conclusion. On the whole, Christians are not better looking than non-Christians. We are not more intelligent than non-Christians. We are not funnier than non-Christians. We're not better looking. Sorry, I've said that already. We're not better dressed than non-Christians, although some of us are. (laughs) Do you know the only difference? We're the people of his presence. That's all we've got going for us. We're the people of his presence. But here's the point of that story. At the end of all the arguments, Moses is saying to the Lord at the burning bush, no, no, I can't do this, I can't do that. And do you know what the Lord says to him? He says, what do you have in your hand? My staff, my shepherd's staff. It's no big deal. I'm always carrying this around. It's just a staff. I've had it for years. It's what I prod the, the sheep with and the cattle. It's no big deal. I'm going to use that. Throw it to the ground. What do you have in your hand? Ah, oh, just this. It's very ordinary. It's been with me all my life. I want to use that. Then scroll forward a number of years. And uh, the disciples, they've just been ministering uh, with Jesus. And, uh, and it's been a heavy ministry time. And uh, they know that tomorrow's their day off tomorrow it's going to be great because they're just going to go in the boat across the Sea of Galilee to a little private resort and they're just going to have some time out with Jesus and they've just been ministering and they're exhausted and they can't wait they're really excited and then they get in the boat and they're saying to each other I know this isn't exactly in the original Greek but like Eugene Peterson I read into it and uh (laughs) And I think they were probably saying, isn't it great? It's just going to be us and Jesus for a while. It's going to be so great. We can play golf with him. We can hang out with him. We can have some kebabs with him and all that sort of stuff. And then they get to the other side. And to their horror, while they've been going across the lake in the boat, 5,000 men have been on a sponsored jog around the outside of the lake. (laughs) And they're there to meet them. Can you imagine the disciples, oh no, oh no, look, there's 5,000 men, he's going to want to minister to them. Well, we'll we'll have to tell him, it's it's our day off. So Let's tell him, let's tell him we can't, it's our day off. And I think one of them said, don't be silly. Can you imagine, you know what's going to happen if we say we can't minister to them, it's our day off. You know what he's going to say. He's going to say something like, my father is always at work and so am I, and then we're going to have to help him no, let's get him on the compassion bit. And so some of them went up to him. And I think they said something like this. Oh, Lord, we see the crowds harassed and helpless. Our hearts are full of compassion for them. Our hearts break. Lord, we would love nothing better than to spend the next few days ministering to their every need. We just so want to care for them. But we've been thinking these poor people, they will be hungry soon. And McDonald's is closed. <laughs> and even though we would love to minister to them, we think for their sake, for their sake, it's probably a good idea if you send them home. That you love Jesus. <laughs> Do you know what he says next? I love it. It says in the scripture, he said to them, You feed them. And do you know the best bits in the Bible? Most other theologians don't completely agree with me yet, but they'll catch up. The best bits in the Bible, I think, are the bits in brackets. And then Jesus says to them, Jesus says to them, you feed them. And then in brackets it says, he said this to test them, for he already knew what he was going to do. Isn't that great? He was having a laugh with them, wasn't he? He was like, I know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to wind them up. You feed them. And then can you imagine, they go back to the others. What did he say? Well, he, he said, we've got to feed them. We've got to feed them. Didn't you tell him McDonald's is closed? We told him McDonald's is closed. Nine months wages wouldn't feed this lot, even if McDonald's was open. Well, someone's going to tell him we can't feed them. I'm not going to tell him. Well, I'm not going to tell him. And do you know what I think happened? I think Pete looked at his little brother, Andy, and he said, Andy, you're the youngest, you tell him. <laughs> and I think Andy... And I'm taking the four stories and putting them together and coming up, I know, with a fifth. But I think, <laughs> I think... I think it fills in the blanks. I really do. And then I think Andy goes off in a huff. It's like, it's always me, it's always me It's the youngest. It's always me it has got to tell him. I'm fed up, I'm not going to... And he goes off... Mm. And then Andy sees a little boy and he goes up to him and he says, Hello, little boy. <laughs> and the little boy says, Hello. Because his voice hasn't broken yet, you see. And then, and then Andy says, What have you got there, little boy? A picnic. <laughs> a picnic. Did your mummy make that for you? Yes. Are you going to eat that all on your own? Yes. What's in the picnic? Five sandwiches and two sardines. Five sandwiches and two sardines. And you're going to eat all of that? Yes. Little boy. Yes. What's that over there? Now, it doesn't explicitly say so in the text, but I'm sure Andrew stole that little boy's picnic. And then they all gather together, and they're all there with Jesus. And Jesus says to them, well, I told you to feed them. What have you got? And 11 disciples look down at their sandals. And this is Andy's moment. He says, "Mm -hmm, I got something. And he takes this little boy's picnic to Jesus. And the others are thinking, you idiot. There's 5,000 men then. You've got a little boy's picnic. Uh -uh, Uh-uh, uh-uh. And then Jesus shocks them all. And Jesus says, that'll do. I can work with that. And then he takes a bit of bread and a bit of fish. And I think he puts it into, into 12 baskets. Now, um... For some reason that we theologians haven't quite completely worked out. It appears that the disciples wandered around the Judean countryside with a basket each, for indeed there were 12 baskets. And now my, my theory, based on extensive research into the original Greek, is that they were probably their laundry baskets. But anyway, there was 12 of them. And I think Jesus put a little bit of bread and a little bit of fish in each basket. And he said, I told them, you feed them. Get them into groups of 50. Get them into lines. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Peter. Okay, my line. Straight line here. Straight line. Uh, would some of you like to go into Andrew's? Uh, no. Okay, we're going to get our heads kicked in. This is not good. This is really not good. Who's first? Oh, my goodness, you're a big shepherd, aren't you? (laughs) What would you like, a little bit of bread or a little bit of fish? (laughs) You'd like a little bit of both. (laughs) How did I know you were going to say that? Well, we have a problem with both. You don't care, do you? (laughs) Now, listen, it's not my fault. Look, look, here's a little bit of bread and here's a little bit of fish. What do you mean you want some more? There's no more. That's it. No one else is going to have any. My basket's empty. Don't hit me. Don't blame me. It's what I was given. Look, there's empty. Oh, there's a little bit more bread. I haven't got any fish. Look, it's oh, well, there's a bit more fish. There's a bit more bread. There's a bit more fish. Next, bread, fish, more bread, more fish, ketchup, ketchup. <laughs> you see, Jesus did a miracle, and he did it in the disciples' hands, and that's just how he wants to do miracles today. And he asked them, what do you have? And they said, just a little boy's picnic. What do you have in your house? Just a little bit of oil. What do you have in your hand? Just an ordinary staff. What do you have in your rucksack? Just a little boy's picnic. That will do, says Jesus. I can work with that. I can use the little you have as long as you give it to me. And that's the place where miracles happen. I used to wait, when I first became a Christian, I used to wander around London when I was 15, 16, going to every meeting where certain Christian leaders with ministries spoke and I would get in the queue for them to lay hands on me. I tell you, there was this, this lady. Does anyone old enough to remember Jean Darnell? She was this, 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 this old Pentecostal lady. I tell you, I was her stalker. I followed her around London. And I, I'm, sh- I'm pretty sure she thought, I'm sure I've laid hands on this one a few hundred times already. And various other people. I didn't realize that God could use me. And that God could use my friends and that we 're very ordinary, and that we 're very broken, and that we get it very wrong and do you know i 'm just starting to come into land with this that 's how he 's always done it he 's always done it like that you know um, in in uh, in the time of Jesus uh, the ambition of Every Jewish mother for her son was that her son would become a rabbi. Every Jewish mother wanted her son not to become a doctor, not to become a lawyer, but to become a rabbi. If you became a rabbi, you'd reached the top. But the training to become a rabbi, the exams you had to pass were absolutely rigorous. It was worse than trying to get into Oxbridge. If you wanted to become a everybody, every Jewish boy at the age of six was enrolled in in the Jewish elementary school, which was called the school of the book, where they had to study the Torah. And then when they got to 11 or 12, they were examined on their understanding of the Torah. And do you know, they had to recite certain bits by heart, but more than that, do you know what the rabbis, for them to get to the next level, the way they questioned them, they they didn't ask them questions. It wasn't how well they answered the questions. They wanted to test them on how well they asked questions. Because if you were going to be a rabbi, it wasn't just about giving the right answers. It was about asking the right questions. It was about asking the questions that would make people think and stop people. So if you, and that's why, you know, when Jesus was 12 and his mom and dad lost him in Jerusalem, and then days later they found him, what was he doing? He was sitting there with the rabbis and the teachers of the law. And what did they say? He asks such great questions. I think he passed to the next school, which was the school of the disciple. And that was from 12, 13. And uh, you wouldn't graduate often until you were maybe 30. And that's where you were taught everything about being a rabbi. And you know what? You know what? Loads failed. Loads failed their 12 plus. And uh, they were told, you haven't passed You've failed. Go back and learn the job that your father does. Learn your father's trade because you will not become a rabbi. Because you are disqualified from being a rabbi. And all the way along the process, people would be disqualified. And when they were disqualified, they had to go back and they had to learn their father's trade. But only the best of the best of the best made it through. To when they were 30. And do you know the last little bit. The last bit of training. When they were about 27 years old. The existing rabbis would, would, would visit these schools. And they would pick. The best of the best of the best. To be their apprentice rabbis. And they would pick the best to be their disciples. And do you know how they would do it? They would point to them. And they would say follow me. Follow me follow me. They picked the best of the best of the best. And if you were picked, that was great because that was your final, that was the last bit of training. And what you did, what you did is you followed your rabbi everywhere. And it wasn't simply about learning what he knew. It was about taking on his whole life. It was taking on what they called his yoke, it was taking on even the way he walked. You would imitate the way he walked. You would imitate the way he made jokes. You would learn to like the same food that he liked. And what they would do is the, the rabbi with his apprentices, he'd get them in a line behind him and they'd walk in a line behind the rabbi and they'd follow in a straight line. Do you know where Rabbi Jesus went to pick his disciples? He didn't go to the best of the best of the best. Matthew 4, verse 18. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. They were disqualified rabbis. They'd learnt their father's trade. They were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and they followed him. Do you know, they thought they were disqualified. They thought they were failures. And then Rabbi Jesus came and he pointed to them and he said, follow me. Can you imagine Peter's reaction? No, you're kidding. You mean I'm not a failure after all? You mean I'm not disqualified? That's why immediately they followed him. That's why immediately they got up. It wasn't that they were hypnotized. It was like, oh my goodness, I get a second shot at this. And they followed him. Now, there's a danger for Peter, knowing Peter, that he might have thought, hey, maybe I'm not so bad after all. <laughs> I'm following Rabbi Jesus. (laughs) I'm pretty good. They must have made a mistake at my 12 plus. So just in case, Peter got the wrong end of the stick. And I promise I do come into land with this. Jesus then called someone else. And you see it in Mark chapter 2, verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to them, came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, otherwise known as Matthew, I think, sitting at the tax collector's booth. "Follow me," Jesus told him. and Levi got up and followed him. Now tax collectors really were the worst of the worst of the worst. They were totally disqualified. No respectable Jew had anything to do with a tax collector. They had to give them money, but they wouldn't socialize with them because they were traitors to Israel. (laughs) Levi was called after Peter and Andrew. Can you imagine Peter? Jesus, no, no mistake. Do you know why? Where was Levi's tax collector's booth? Did you pick it up? It was by the sea of Galilee who worked at the sea of Galilee as fishermen Peter and Andrew Levi was very probably their very own tax collector he took their money his booth was by the Sea of Galilee. That's where he did his work. And then Jesus picks the worst person for Peter. And Peter, I can imagine, saying, no, no, not him. Not him. Not him. This is no good. This is no good. He is the worst of the worst of the worst. And I can imagine Jesus looking at Peter. And his look saying, oh, Pete, if we're going on that standard, You see, Jesus picks those who are disqualified or consider themselves disqualified to do his work. And do you remember what I said? That The disciples would follow their their rabbi and they would walk in a straight line and they would literally walk in the same way that he walked. And do you know, if you were in a line behind your rabbi, do you know the place of honour, the position that every disciple wanted to have? It was right behind their rabbi. It was number two. Do you know why? Because as the rabbi walked in the dusty roads of of Israel, as he walked, he would kick up the dust as he walked. And the person who would walk behind him would by the end of the day be full of, be, be covered in the dust of his rabbi. And if you were covered in the dust of your rabbi, you didn't want to shower that night. It was an, a thing of honor. I'm covered in the dust of my rabbi. We're disqualified, except he qualifies us. And I don't know about you, but I want to be covered in his dust I want to, and if I'm going to be covered in his dust, I've got to walk as closely behind him as I can because I've realized it's not about how good I am. It's about how good he is. And I finish totally with this. If you feel that you're weak, that you're broken, and that you're a failure, and that God can't use you, Here is a roll call of some of the people God used in Scripture Noah was a drunk. Abraham was too old. Isaac was a daydreamer. Jacob was a liar. Leah was ugly. Joseph was abused. Moses had a stutter. Gideon was afraid. Samson was a flirt. Rahab was a prostitute. Jeremiah and Timothy were too young. David was an adulterer and a murderer. Elijah was suicidal. Isaiah preached naked. Don't you get any ideas? Jonah ran from God. Job went bankrupt. Peter denied Jesus. The disciples fell asleep while they were praying. I'm so glad that one's in there. (laughs) The Samaritan woman was divorced and a sex addict. Zacchaeus was too small. Paul was too religious. Timothy probably had an ulcer. And Lazarus was dead. And I've worked out if God can use a dead man, (laughs) he can use me. What do you have? What do you have in your house? It's not very much, is it? Put your jars out, let him fill it. What do you have in your hand? It's very ordinary throw it to the ground, and see what God can do. What do you have in your rucksack? <laughs> Just a little boy's picnic. There's no way that's going to go around. That's where God wants to do the miracles. And however old we are, however young we are, he wants to use us. However clever we are, and however not so clever we are, however good looking we are and however much we look like Mark. God, (laughs) I had to do that once, God wants to use us. And what we're going to do right now is we're going to put some jars out and we're going to ask him to fill the jars with the oil of his spirit. We're going to present little old us to him and we're going to say, Lord, X marks the spot fill me that I might be spent in your service are you up for it? let's stand together